Hi, everyone. Welcome back for another podcast, another session of the Energy Geoscience MRCI podcast. Today, I have two very special guests. Our first guest is Dr. Rika Brun. She is a researcher at the University of Oslo. And we also have Dr. Sean Evans, who is a postdoctoral research fellow at the University of Oslo as well. So thank you both for being here. I really appreciate your time. Uh, let's get started today. So why don't we go to you first, Rika? Could you please share uh, a little bit about yourself with our audience? So give them a little bit on your background, maybe your degrees or your career progression, and then any goals or passions that you have. Sure, thanks for having me here. Um, my name is Rika Brun, I'm Danish. Uh, I have a PhD in cinematology from the University of Copenhagen from back in 2003. And I have been working since uh, fairly recently in the oil and gas business in Norway. Um, I've been interested in environmental issues for a long time and uh, had the chance to join the University of Oslo about a year ago in a research position in the CCS group there. Uh, I'm quite passionate about um, working to develop CO2 storage into an industry. I think this is an important climate mitigation uh, mm. task, and I think that it could be uh, solve some of our problems at least. Um, and I also think that it could be a, uh, a big industry. So I'm quite passionate about upscaling mm-hmm. CO2 storage in Europe uh, and working towards that. Yeah. Oh, that's so awesome. Thank you so much for being here today. Um, Dr. Evans, could you please tell us a bit more about your background? So any uh, career goals that you have, passions, um, just a little bit of your experience so far. Yeah, of course. So yeah, hi. Uh, yeah, I'm Sean, as you said. Um, I'm now a postdoc at the University of Oslo. So I finished my PhD a year and a half ago now. Um, and my PhD was in structural geology. I also before that did a master's in petroleum geoscience. Mm-hmm. So I've been sort of uh, in the academic side of the energy industry for a little while now. And a lot of my research has been applicable to oil and gas exploration so far. But when I came to the end of my PhD, I wanted to kind of refocus myself to a more kind of energy transition role because, you know, these topics are becoming more and more important, you know, in every discussion and every conference, you know, we know more and more what actions we need to take. And so when I saw this position for carbon capture and storage research, I was like, yes, absolutely. That's where I want to now apply my skills. Mm -hmm. So I'm relatively new in the CCS world. Yes. As I said, I've had this position for a year and a half. So there's still a lot that I am learning whilst I'm doing my research as well. Mm -hmm. Oh, that's so great. Yeah. Congratulations to you both on your positions. And um, it's really exciting to hear you know, everything you've done and then what you're going to be doing going forward. So let's start uh, for topics today. Let's start talking about CCUS specifically in Norway um, and maybe some other parts of the North Sea. So projects in the UK and Denmark. Um, 
let's hear who would like to answer this one either one of you wants to take this one and take a stab at it sean yeah, yeah go yeah, ahead yeah 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 so so norway actually has a bit of a, a longer history with ccs than a lot of other countries mm -hmm. so there's one particular site um it's called sleitner offshore mm -hmm. norway where they've been injecting co2 in a shallow aquifer there for about 25 years um so that's actually you know people think of ccs as this you know new and unproven technology but in norway they have already a bit of experience with that mm -hmm. and also there's another site snovit which is in the the north of norway and that's had a, a slightly uh shorter history but still several years into that project as well but at the moment the big thing is this uh this longship project so a few years ago the government decided that they were going to throw financial support completely into this full chain CCS project. Mm -hmm. So from selected uh, sites initially to capture the CO2, transport it by ship around the coast of Norway, and then pipe it offshore where it will be stored in the subsurface um, offshore Norway on the Norwegian continental shelf. Um, so the transport and storage side of that is the Northern Lights project, mm -hmm. which I think everyone has heard about if they've heard about CCS in Norway. And that's um, run by a partnership between Equinor, Shell and Total. Um, but then there's a couple of chosen sites which are part of the capture part of that, which is a, a waste to energy facility and a cement plant, which are near Oslo as well. So the government in Norway has basically decided that this is now the time to throw full support behind it, invest to try and get this uh, yeah, this business model, as Rika was saying, up and running and prove that this in its full chain entirety can actually be a viable solution for the energy transition, especially because Norway has such an active oil and gas industry. Mm -hmm. Oh, that's mm -hmm. awesome. Yeah, it's it's really uh, inspiring to hear this. And I, I really hope it's successful because I think if, if it's financially successful, um, it would be a really good case study to show off globally and hopefully other countries begin to follow more and more. Yeah, there are, I mean, yeah, you mentioned other projects popping up around the North Sea as well. So yeah, yeah. there's also projects now in the UK as well, the Northern Endurance Partnership, where they're also now uh, getting the infrastructure up and going for that. And there's projects, oh yeah, Denmark has also got projects now, the Netherlands as well. So mm -hmm. yeah, I think around the world more and more of these projects are popping up everywhere mm -hmm. yeah it's so exciting yeah go ahead yeah if i can add to that i think uh, i know a little bit about the danish projects because i happen mm -hmm. to be danish and interested in that and uh, a lot of these projects are looking into how to refurbish existing infrastructure mm. that is uh, from from the oil and gas business so, so the two projects that are that are running as as sort of top part research funded in Denmark are looking into to reusing sites uh, as it to to depleted oil and gas fields to to inject into and there are also demonstration projects for now but they are pointing forward into try and yeah demonstrating that the north sea could be a, a big hub for european countries and and mm. and an establishment of, of big value change that links the big polluters in 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 europe mm -hmm. with with repositories in in the north sea reservoirs mm -hmm. so i think that's quite it'll be really exciting to follow in the years to come how what comes out of these projects mm -hmm. 
Yeah, absolutely. That's great. So in terms of site selection consideration, so perhaps, you know, saline aquifers versus depleted oil and gas fields um, and utilizing in existing infrastructure, uh, Rika, could you tell us more about what people should be utilizing or what is what is the preferred sort of method or infrastructure for these type of projects? Well, if we start just by looking at, at site properties, I mean, a, a, a saline aquifer is has a lot of similarities with, with an, an oil and gas trap mm-hmm. in the sense that you have to have a some sort of a container that has a, a porous media mm-hmm. at a certain depth and that this, this certain depth should be at a, at a temperature and pressure where the CO2 is kept as a liquid or supercritical form and not as in a gas form because then it will has a, a larger chance of breaking the breaking the overburden and actually escaping out of the trap where we want it to stay. Um, so you want a container at a good depth and you want that to have a seal above it mm-hmm. and to the side so that something that is impermeable and and that CO2 cannot micro- percolate through um, and and this is essentially what 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 an oil and gas trap is mm-hmm. um, so 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 we have a lot I mean all the, the the oil and gas producing countries around the North Sea for example and, and many other places in the world have a lot of knowledge about which aquifers slash reservoirs work um, and and where they are and of course, that is built up through collection of a lot of data through 50, 60 years. So we do have a lot of we, we do have a lot of information available of what is out there. Uh, in Norway, it, it has to be offshore because there are no porous media onshore because it's all it, it's all solid rock. But mm-hmm. but in the all the sediments that are deposited out in the in the North Sea, that is where we're looking. And of course, areas where you, we have been looking for oil and gas, which is in places where there is a mature and, and, and oil generating source rock, that that is where we know most, because that's where the efforts are being concentrated. So that the pluses about looking into, let's say, old oil fields is mm-hmm. that we know a lot about how these the aquifers hang together. Mm-hmm. We know a lot about what they look like, how they how they are connected. Um, so that's the that's a plus, of course. The, the the downside is 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 mainly that we've also punched a lot of holes through the seal, mm-hmm. because we have been drilling wells, and these wells will have some issues in the way that they are uh, the, their long term integrity, because the way that when you finish the usage of the well, you plug it back with with cement typically and uh, cement and steel have some issues to be corroded because CO2 dissolved in water is is acidic. So it has a tendency to leach leach the steel to make it rust and and leach the cement. So there is some that that's the downside Mm. of those. Um, But but all in all, I think that this knowledge that we have built up is a is a huge advantage in developing aquifers we're we're looking also in slightly different areas to where we're producing oil and gas but we still have a a lot of data and a lot of knowledge to to pull on Mm -hmm. yeah Yeah. thank you for that that's amazing sean do you have anything to add to that 
Uh, I think Rika covered that quite well there, actually. Yeah. But um, yeah. yeah, I think yeah, it is sort of this catch-22, as Rika was saying, and that the mm-hmm. areas we know most about are the areas where we've punched the most holes in our seals. So um, for the Northern Lights project, at least, the the air, the um, aquifer that they're injecting into is not a, a producing uh, reservoir for this, but it is going to migrate up dip below mm-hmm. the troll field, which is a, a major oil and gas field. So there is going to be a, a relationship between these oil and gas fields and the injection sites. Um, but I think in, in the future, we can potentially look at utilizing you know, basins that were not interesting for oil and gas exploration, but we have to look at, you know, potentially the costs of having to collect the information on these sites Mm -hmm. that we know less about. Mm -hmm. Um, But also, you know, we don't have any risks from our our seal being punctured by wells, and maybe we can also look at different trapping types as well. So as Ricker mentioned, there is the kind of traditional structural trap, but also, you know, we can have long distance migration where we can have co2 just trapped within the pore space as the co2 is migrating up dip and then eventually become dissolved uh within the uh the pore fluids or the brine and that could that can be a a secure form of of long-term storage as well Mm -hmm. um and there's then there's also a, a contribution from stratigraphic traps and you know there's even you know every country has to look at what they've got on their doorstep. So, for example, in Iceland, they're going to be injecting CO2 into basalts as well, which is a totally different yeah. uh, game entirely. So I think, yeah, there's many, many different strategies and trapping mechanisms that we can utilize. And, you know, each each country or each region has to basically look at how they can best utilize their own resources. Mm-hmm. If I can add to that, I thought that was some good, really good points, John. Yeah. But one of the things you touched upon is with looking at your doorstep and 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 something about keeping costs down, and I think to me that this keeping costs down is is a really key mm. key word in order to develop CCS into an industry because CO two is essentially a waste product, a byproduct from combustion processes mm. in essence. Uh, and it's not like oil and gas where you it, which is a valuable the valuable commodities that that and then the oil and gas market works on normal sort of commercial terms where ccs the value of co2 has, hasn't got a value not in the quanta we produce it so so it's a politically steered process of what should it cost i mean these are being developed in the in the EU, for example, by by the green taxonomy and setting prices on what should it cost the polluter to get rid of mm-hmm. the waste product. Mm-hmm. So in order to keep to to make an industry out of this, this focus on cost is really really essential. How much does it cost to drill the wells and and keep the have compressors to compress the gas in and, and into a a state where you can inject it into the aquifer and what does it cost to to monitor the the site after the injection because this is a legal requirement at least in in norway uh, in order to ensure that the co2 stays where we would like it to stay so 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 cost is going to be a a real driver for developing Mm-hmm. this into something that matters in a climate yeah. perspective absolutely so moving on to 
comparing CCUS or CCS to uh, traditional petroleum exploration. In terms of sort of the nitty gritty technical details about like uh, the reservoir, the structure, things like that, the different uh, play elements, uh, Sean, would you be willing to comment on uh, some of those key differences for people maybe coming into CCUS from petroleum geology? How do they have to rewire their brains or their skill set um, to work on CCUS related projects? Yeah, that's a great question. And I mean, as Rika was saying before, the knowledge base that we have from oil and gas exploration is, you know, most of it is directly applicable to CCS in the fact that we have, mm. you know, we need those basic elements of, mm -hmm. you know, in many cases, trap, seal, uh, porous media. But there are some things that are actually different about how we think about a CCS project compared to a traditional oil and gas production. So, for example, when we are producing oil and gas or exploring for oil and gas, we're often looking for clean sands, you know, the, the purer, the better, just maximize porosity and permeability and, you know, mm -hmm. good to go. But in CCS, you know, a bit of heterogeneity in our reservoir is actually a, a positive thing, mm -hmm. because that can help increase the the sweep and the storage efficiency of our of our reservoir, we want to basically baffle the CO2 and keep those small pockets of CO2 and small traps within that reservoir as much as possible as that plume is migrating and storing within our, our structure. So actually, you know, we need to kind of change our mindset from the better sands, the better to actually, you know, some heterogeneity, not too much, but some is actually a good thing and will increase our uh, storage capacity. Um, and then, yeah, one of the other things just as a, in terms of how we're kind of thinking about the injection strategy is that if if we have identified a structure that we think would be suitable for for co2 storage you never ever want to just okay let's drill in the crest of that and start <laughs> injecting there mm -hmm. that's almost the exact opposite of what what you want to think about when you're injecting co2 you want to you never want your pressure when you're injecting to build up within the crest of your structure because then you're of course risking leakage mm -hmm. uh, or you know even fracturing through the through the top of your structure so in fact you need to change your strategy so you inject somewhere i mean basically as far away as you can from your crest but constraining those migration pathways so that you know that your co2 is going to migrate through your aquifer and eventually become trapped mm -hmm. so yeah, a lot of the elements are similar between traditional oil and gas and CCS, but there are a few key differences and those are just a couple of them and the behavior of CO2 is not yeah, exactly the same as mm -hmm. as oil or gas either. So we also have to bear in mind that you know, all of these things are actually different. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Mm -hmm. Yeah, Rika, go ahead. Uh, and if I could just add to that one thing that I have at least learned myself very recently is that of course when you inject CO2 into an aquifer you will ha you have to remove an equal volume of of the of the water the aquifer in the pore spaces so in order to be able to bleed off that pressure for the pressure to dissipate away from the plume mm. you actually need a lot of aquifer mm. so you need a really big connected aquifer so the so of course aquifer support and aquifer drive in an oil and gas field is also important, but it's even more important here mm -hmm. because you cannot, I mean, if we want to, 
the 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 volumes of CO two that we want to inject are really massive. So in order to inject massive amounts of CO2, you need to be able to move massive amounts of water. Mm. And if you don't want to drill wells to to take the water out in the same way as the opposite way in an oil field, you inject water to keep the pressure up. But here you might, but but you don't want to drill too many wells because that is expensive. Mm-hmm. So, so you need to get rid of that that water. So, having aquifer a, a really large connected aquifer is absolutely essential here. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, that's that's really great. Um, so, thinking of like drilling and your entire like infrastructure related to an oil producing prospect, something like that. Do you think that it's going to favor more on the lateral side where you're injecting? Uh, carbon like laterally from where you're producing that oil or do you think it's going to go more at deeper stratigraphic or structural trap levels do you know if there's a preference to people thinking more like vertical or more laterally at the current time or do you see a trend starting to develop i think that uh, going back to sean's uh, comments about doorstep i mm-hmm. think that there is a that 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 will vary from from area to area depending on what's what's possible. Sure. Because another thing, and going back to costs again, you don't want to uh, you want to see what's in your neighbourhood. Yeah. If that neighbourhood works, for example, if you in in Norway we've got the big uh, gas centrals where all the gas pipes are coming in from from fields and if you want to produce blue hydrogen for example mm-hmm. uh, you would want to put that plant next to the gas plant because you don't want to build too much infrastructure for that sure. and then you want to be able to transport that the co2 that you then sequest in that process the, the hydrogen production mm-hmm. process you want to put that not too far away and either you have to build a pipeline Mm-hmm. to some repository and aquifer in the re- in the neighborhood and that then you don't want that to be too far away i think the one that they're building in the northern lights is about 75 kilometers ish mm. wow. um or otherwise you have to put it on a ship mm-hmm. and then sail it to somewhere but that also costs money and needs compressor station and unloading and offloading so in general i think you'd want to look at what's close mm-hmm. and whether that so it's a trade-off yeah because between the the ideal storage space and, and what you have to what infrastructure you have to construct in order to access that space yeah yeah that makes a lot of sense yeah thank you so much for that i, I think that the, i think that this is is going to be really interesting to see the next five to ten years what's going on and what's going to happen because if you listen to what is being presented by various companies that are working with this mm-hmm. um they all have big goals for 3035 yeah and 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 20 no sorry 2035 and 2050 <laughs> because those are the numbers that are in the in the IEA's plan for a path to zero yeah mm-hmm. and in order to sort of if you look at the plans that that for scaling up and and getting this in uh, building into this into business there are going to be a lot of activities over the next 10 years yes because of course all these activities take time to build up there's plans to build a, 
hundreds of ships that mm. can carry CO2, for example, and various concepts are being tested out. So this is, a, 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 I see this as an industry that's going to explode mm. in the next 10 years. Yeah, I think yeah. it'll be really interesting to follow. Mm-hmm. And I really cross my fingers for success. Yeah. For for the various projects, so that so, so that this will be something that makes a difference. Mm-hmm. To, yeah, absolutely. In a, in a, in a climate uh, with with some climate mitigation eyes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's the thing. Upscaling is the the real challenge, I think. Because I mean, I didn't mention the any numbers when I talked about Northern Lights earlier. But even in this initial phase of the Northern Lights project, when they ramp up their with their initial injector, they can accommodate about five million tons of CO two per year, and even that is only. Uh, te- about 10% of Norway's annual emissions. So it's a drop in the ocean, really. So mm-hmm. the upscaling is a huge challenge and everything now has to happen very quickly for us to actually meet these very ambitious climate targets that we have to meet, essentially. Yeah. So I think uh, one one final thing I would mention is that people often think of CCS as being, um, you know, maybe a like the solution that will allow us to maintain, you know, oil and gas production for decades. But it's it's a it's a transitional technology and it has to come alongside drastic emissions reductions as well. Mm-hmm. So I think that's that's important to mention that we're not yeah. just, you know, let's carry on business as usual and we can shove everything underground, but mm-hmm. actually that you know this rapid transition has to happen now and it has to come alongside other measures, other technologies, and and drastic emissions reductions as well. That's awesome. Thank you both so much for being here today. It's It's been an honor and a pleasure to talk to you. I really appreciate your time, and I'm sure there are so many people out here that will really learn a lot from this podcast, so thank you. Yeah, thank you, Rochelle. Thanks yeah. a lot, Rochelle. Yeah, absolutely. Mm-hmm. Take care. Yeah, great. Thank you. Thank Bye. You. Bye. Bye. This podcast is sponsored by the Midwest Regional Carbon Initiative, which is a structured five-year program funded by the U.S. Department of Energy. It is co-led by Battelle and the Illinois State Geological Survey. The initiative works to connect science, technology, and research to advance CCUS acceptance and deployment in 20 states across the Midwest, Mid-Atlantic, and New England regions of the United States.